This morning we had some questions and answers, and we didn't have time to answer all the questions to do justice to them. So, shall I pick up with your question? That was a question about the twelfth chapter of Bhagavad Gita and the twelfth verse of that chapter is a little difficult to understand. So, Brigu asked for some clarification on that. So, I think uh, in answering it, it would be in our interest to give an overview of the chapter and to locate it in, in the book and um, that will help to give us a better understanding overall. So the twelfth chapter, the Bhagavad Gita course is divided into 18 chapters. And how many sections? Three. Three sections, right? Six, six, and six. So the twelfth would be the end of the second section. And roughly the first six chapters, the first section, what would you say it dealt with if you were to give it a title? You would say karma yoga does deal with that. I think we could say that it speaks considerably about um, yoga psychology. Middle chapters, six chapters, deal more with the theology of the Bhagavad Gita. And the last six chapters deal with the metaphysical worldview of the of the Bhagavad Gita. So, twelfth chapter and is the end of the six chapters dealing with the theology. And the first question in the twelfth chapter connects nicely to the last verse of the sixth chapter, which introduces, if you're following me, the middle six chapters. After Krishna has concluded the first six chapters describing the kind of the yoga psychology of how to what is the nature of the mind, how to control it, and other related things. He ends that chapter by saying, of all types of yoga, bhakti yoga, this is the best. Yoginam, how's it go? Yoginam apisarveshamadvitantra. So devotional yoga, this is the best kind of yoga, he says. That's after describing many different types of approaches to the Absolute. It's a kind of a means to say that if we approach with our heart, that's the best. It's hard to deny. We can approach with our physically, we can approach mentally, intellectually, but if we approach anything with our heart, we approach it comprehensively. If the heart stops, then, then the soul goes. We were talking briefly about euthanasia this morning. So if the heart stops, then everything's finished. And whatever the heart beats for is really what life's all about. As we were also speaking this morning, we live in a world of really emotions. It's said that the mind is a reflection of the heart. So sometimes we relegate uh, emotions of this world to the mind. And indeed, they are in many respects. We feel things in this world because we have a mind. The mind is an instrument that, in a sense,
feels the world. And because we've, as a conscious entity, turned on the machine of the, of the mind, we get some sense of feeling through that, through our attachment to the mind. So happiness, distress, and a whole range of human emotions are all really taking place in the mind. If, for example, one thing is happy to you, that very same thing could be unhappy to another person. So that determination is relative to the minds that that each person has. So the experience is is really completely, it's not objective, it's very subjective, it's, it's in the mind. I've said before, an example comes to my mind again, because I live, as you know, some of you have been there in the, in the forest on a ridgetop, and, and sometimes birds that ordinarily fly very high, they're, they're close to us. And that type of bird is like a, the ones that come more often, are these big um, vultures. And so they're circling, circling around and circling around, and they're looking for a festival. But what is a festival in the, that vulture's mind is a funeral in someone else's mind. So which is it? Is it a festival or is it a, a funeral? It's all in the mind. So the experience that we have in our present situation is through this uh, filter of, of mind. And that means, what that means is that we're not feeling all that we could feel. And because life is about feeling, we're not being all that we could be under the oppression, if you will, of the mind. But we're led to believe that because we have a mind, we can think and know. If we think on it, then we can apprehend it, know it. But the nature of the entirety of the experience of life will never be had through the mental faculties. So the feelings that our life is based on, we do live in a world of feelings. These feelings are almost like reflections of of real feelings. We talked about it this morning briefly by comparing it to what in the computer language would be a virtual reality. If we plug into the mind, we we experience a virtual reality and and all that goes on there, our heart is beating whether it's going down and it's coming up and we're tossing and turning, but we're really sitting in one place, never going anywhere still. But Krishna says that there's a yoga of emotion, a yoga of feeling. Yoga also means knowledge. He says this kind of yoga, this is the best, this is the highest knowledge. So there is a plane of experience, we call it reality, ultimate reality, that is an ocean of real emotions, not emotions and feelings that are just coming through the instrument of the mind. That mind focuses on different objects in this world, and then we we try to... uh, either enjoy them or uh, avoid them and so forth. So it leads us to the idea that along with the life of emotions, 
that we experience in the material world, they're objects also. We have a life of feeling. Granted, it's the feeling of the mind, but it's a feeling in relation to objects. So in the yoga of devotion, yoga of feeling, yoga of the heart, and we've heard already in the first six chapters before we get to this last verse that extols the virtues of this kind of devotional and heart yoga, that the experience of yoga takes place beyond the mind. It begins by controlling the mind, putting it in its place through understanding of the nature of the objects that we are relating with, through understanding the nature of the fruits of our efforts. And that understanding mandates that the fruits are really not what they appear to be. So it mandates a kind of a, of a life of sacrifice of the fruits of activity. This brings the mind to rest, controls it, brings peace, and so forth. Then you can start to come out from beneath the mind. So this experience of yoga takes place beyond the mind, and the yoga of the heart, the yoga of feeling and emotion, which takes us into a world of actual emotions, not virtual emotions, those emotions all have a corresponding object. Just like our emotions in this life have objects that they correspond with. You follow me? And so, this last verse of the sixth chapter of the Gita, which extols the virtues of this devotional yoga, connects nicely with the first verse of the twelfth chapter of the Gita, which is concluding the section on the theology. So what is that section of theology all about? It's really all about the object of devotion in this world of spiritual emotions. The perfect object, if you will, of love, where we can repose ourselves, our hearts, our being, an object in relation to which if we give up ourselves entirely, the experience will be one of getting. Not as much as we give, but so much the getting eclipses the act of giving that the fact that we're giving is forgotten altogether. This is the idea of the yoga of devotion. And that object, of course, is the speaker of the Gita himself, Bhagavan Sri Krishna. In so many ways, in the seventh chapter, middle six chapters, he explains his, himself as the highest object of love. So, at the end of that section, these middle six chapters of the Gita, giving the theology, Arjun asks the question, what's the best kind of worship? Worship of you? Or worship of Brahman? Now, Brahman means the absolute, but... Krishna has explained himself to be even, if you will, more than the absolute, Param Brahma. It's almost like a, a, an, an idea of beyond, beyond God. Hmm? If there could be such a thing, that would be Krishna. So, for further clarification, Arjuna asks such a question. It's already been established as I've explained at the end of the sixth chapter, which leads into the theology of the Gita, 
that the best type of yoga is devotional yoga. And he's explained in so many ways in the middle six chapters that he's really the supreme object. But for final and conclusive, uh, bringing an end to the whole discussion, Arjuna asks the question. He's not dumb, (laughs) but Krishna's words are very profound. Every word is very profound, so so much meaning is found there. Although he's heard six chapters of theology of, of the Gita explained by the supreme theologian himself, it's not so easy to understand it all. So for, for clarification, he's got the idea, otherwise how could he ask the question? From the question we understand, he's been listening, and he wants to make sure I heard it right. <laughs> Now, is this what you said? That are you the supreme object of, of worship, the supreme object of love? I think that's what you said. It could have, somebody could have construed it otherwise, perhaps. And indeed, there are so many that do. So many commentaries on the Gita that manage to somehow displace Krishna from being the supreme object of worship. So, Arjuna, of course, is devotee of Krishna par excellence and naturally his movements then are all motivated by love for Krishna. He's barely an extension of Krishna's own self by which he expresses himself. So it's understandable that he could ask good questions giving rise to the whole of the Gita and in this section as well. A very nice question. What is the supreme object of worship? We talked this morning a little bit about the idea of a world of emotions as opposed to a world of virtual emotions. And that that's what we mean when we speak of Krishna Leela. The Leela of Krishna, there are, there are movements, everything that we experience in this world, which is basically an emotive life. There's some knowing, but it's subordinate to feeling. Therefore, we so often say, I know, but I feel otherwise, and I'm going to do that. (laughs) And as much as we bear down and know, and by knowing, check our feelings, we really kind of move away from the world. But Gaudiya Vaishnavism talks about coming full circle from knowing to real feeling not just knowing the falsity of feelings in this world and how they won't satisfy us, but knowing the potential of the soul, experiencing the potential of the soul to feel, to love. So we talked about the idea of Krishna Lila as a world of emotions, spiritual emotions. It's a world of ecstasy. Those ecstasies have been given different names to help us understand them. Those names are Staibhav, Vibhav, Anubhav, Satpikabhav, Sancharibhav. These are the basic elemental emotive, emotive substances that that world is, is made out of. Very interesting concept. And what are they? We talked about all of them this morning in brief, except for one, 
and one that we didn't mention is the vibhav. Let me go through all of them briefly. Staibhav. Staibhav means a dominant and steady emotion. Just like in, in our life, let us say a man and a woman are in a relationship. So that would likely be the dominant emotion in their life. And there would be things that, that they would do based on that emotion, ways in, ways in which they would voluntarily act, ways that they would involuntarily act by the power of the, 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 the dominant emotion. There would be other emotions that would augment that dominant emotion at different times, come and go. And there would be, well, the two, those two, the man and the woman. Depending on which side we looked at it, one would be the object of love, the other would be the the vessel of that love, the shelter of that love. For the woman in a heterosexual relationship, the man would be the object of love, and for the man, the woman would be the object of love. So when the man is taking the position of the object of love, the woman is taking the position of being the, the container of that love, and vice versa. So this is what we mean by vibhav. In other words, in order for there to be love, there have to be two. Two becoming one. You and I become we. Us. There's still the two, but we call them us. Us doesn't mean one person. It means two people together. We means two people together. This tells us something about Gaudiya Vaishnavism, many things, but one thing it tells us about the, the very, the, the meta-narrative of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is called Lachinta Veda Veda. means the nature of things is that they're one and different at the same time. So those who are engaging in bhakti, heart yoga, in relation to the object of that yoga, of their love. They are the, the carrier of the love, and Krishna is the object of the love, and in the act of loving, which we call that, that heart yoga that he spoke about, there's a union, a very dynamic union, because it's, it's a union in which individuality is lost and, and maintained at the same time. And it's very wonderful to think how it's lost and how it is maintained. The devotee loses his or her identity in Krishna. In prem, love, the devotee loses all sense of his or her own desires and is wholly identified with the desires of Krishna. So, some boundary problem from a psychological point of view. The devotee has become one with Krishna. But meanwhile, what does Krishna do? 
Krishna takes over then the desires of the devotee. He becomes one with them. So the two remain, but they've changed positions emotively while staying in the same place. So there's a dynamic kind of union between the what we call in Ashrayalambana, Vishayalambana. These are the two things. Vishay means object of love. Ashray means the container of the love, the holder of the love, the possessor of the love, the abode of the love. So in order for there to be a world of love and emotions, that this, that this yoga, this knowledge is about, there have to be these two things. So Arjuna is clarifying here, what is the Vishay Alambana of the Bhakti Yoga that you said is best? What is the object of love for what you said was the best kind of yoga, this heart yoga, this yoga of love. And of course, again, it's Krishna makes it clear definitively there in the chapter. It's me. There's no other, no second, no lesser manifestation even of me, Arjun. It's me, ultimately. I am Swayam Bhagawan. I am Rasaraj. In fact, when Krishna does answer it, as I've related, uh, Vishwanachakavati Thakur says, this is Shamsundar speaking. Shamsundar means that form of Krishna, of God, from which all other forms come. The perfect object of love. He said, that is me, Shamsundar, Rasaraj. Rasaraj means king of feelings. Love is the supreme feeling and he is the emperor of love. Rasaraj, before he can make a statement like Jajatamam Papadyante Tam Satayva Vajamiham Mamabhartante Manushaparta Sarvasa As people approach me, I can reciprocate accordingly. However much love, with however much love, what kind of love, whatever way you approach me without love, I can reciprocate accordingly. This is my position. So he's the supreme object of love, he says. If we take up the idea of entering that world of spiritual emotions and then we our objective in our practice of yoga, this devotional yoga, is what? What is our objective? Our objective is to become that container of love for which Krishna is the object. Now that kind of love may have different nuances. Just like any person has different types of loving relationships. So those nuances of love, they're called the staibhav. Again, the dominant emotion. Just like I gave you the example. Man and woman in love, then the dominant emotion in their life, while there are other emotions in play, the dominant one is their love for one another. So as one, through bhakti, in practice, that means one who engages in the practices of the things that others who are experiencing that emotive world have done by imitating those kinds of practices, doing those things, one will get those kinds of feelings, emotions, love for Krishna. So, over time, through practice, this dominant emotion starts to develop within us. A certain kind of, I want to love Krishna, like a servant, like a friend, like a, like a well-wisher of Krishna, 
like I was going to take care of him and he was dependent upon me, like a lover of Krishna. This is the Stayibhav. So we have the Vibhav. There are two kinds of Vibhav. There's the one kind I mentioned, Ashrayalambana, Vishayalambana, the devotee and Krishna. These two ingredients are necessary for that world of love. The other kind of Vibhav means relative to the Stayibhav that one has, the dominant emotion of love that, that one has for Krishna. Certain things that Krishna will do will excite that love. The way he plays his flute, it will be an excitement. When I hear that, my heart will rise up. Just like if we come home and we haven't seen our daughter for some time, and then as we come home, we look on the doormat, we see her shoes there. Oh, my daughter has come. She's here. We see the shoes. We get excited. We loved her anyway. Parent loved a daughter. Thinks about her. Wonders when she's ever going to... I'm when I'm going to see her again. She never calls. So she has the love anyway, but certain things excite it more. Oh, this is also called Vibhav. So relative to the particular Stayibhav or dominant emotion that a devotee has, then certain things that Krishna does, well, the, way he, the way he dresses, the way he carries his flute and his belt, the way he plays certain notes, and he's so many things. The way he dresses himself with a peacock's feather as a crown, as will ex- excite. All relative to that particular dominant sentiment or emotion. So we have stayibhav, vibhav, and anubhav. Anubhav means... Anu means to follow. So those things that people do that ensues or follows from the dominant emotion. And all these different dominant emotions will cause the devotees in that world of emotions to act in different ways. If someone loves Krishna as a friend, then there will be certain things that he does that naturally, like challenging Krishna to fight, to wrestle, something like that. And there'll be certain moves that he makes. and These are all called anubhavs. So all of the movements in this world are all these anubhavs relative to the different dominant emotion that different devotees have in relation to, to Krishna. Expressions of themselves being this container of love. And then there are other movements that are not determined movements or deliberate movements. They're involuntary movements. Just like in our ordinary life's experience of virtual emotions, then we also have involuntary movements. Somebody does something, we don't think about it, we just start to cry. Or we get in a situation, we're driving on the highway, and somebody's going, the driver's going fast, and another car comes in, and we get afraid, and then we don't think about it, but our hair kind of stands on end and we get flushed. And so, so as this takes place in the, in the virtual world, world of virtual emotions, so this world of actual emotions that's made up, just like our world is only made up of emotions, that world is only made up of emotions, but here, this world is really virtual emotions, as I said, only experienced in the mind. And the mind is a dead thing. It doesn't endure, and we are life. We, we live. 
we have potential to know, to feel, to taste, to experience all these things, unfettered by the mind. So again, yoga is experienced outside of that mind, beyond the mind. And the highest expression of that yoga is entering into a world of actual emotion. So everything there is made up of ecstasy. We can call it spiritual emotions, but ecstasy. Anubhav, the involuntary emotions are called sattvika bhavs. Then there's sanchari bhavs. Those are the bhavas that augment the dominant feeling. Just like if you're in love with Krishna, like a milkmaiden, like a gopi, then while you love him entirely, sometimes you'll be filled with an emotion that you may doubt that you love, that he loves me. Does he love me? He has so many gopis. Does he think of me? I have a doubt. And we'll get a sign that he does end a jubilation. The nature of that affair, that it might have to be concealed sometimes. So in this way, when we hear about Krishna, and we read the story about Krishna, when we see the picture of Krishna depicted in art and so forth, what that's all about is all these things we're talking about. Everything there is ecstasy. Every movement is ecstasy. Everything that goes on, it's all bhava. That's what it's all made of. And when these, all these ingredients of that world, bhava, are combined together nicely, it, it ascends to what we call rasa, rasananda. And Taitreya Upanishad says what? Raso vaisaha. Brahman is rasa, ultimately. Therefore, Krishna in this 12th chapter is saying, when Arjuna asks, what's better, to worship Brahman or to worship you? He says, me. If you know Brahman well enough, then you know Brahman is rasa in its fullest expression. Rasa He is Brahman. He is rasa. And knowing him as such, one can taste rasa himself and live in that in the, in the world of the soul's fullest potential. Soul has some potential that matter doesn't have. Matter is also a shakti an energy, a potency of God, just like the jiva soul is, like we are. But we have a potential that matter doesn't have. And if we get an investment of greater capital, from we're, an, we're a particle of consciousness, if we get an investment from the world of consciousness, from the reservoir of consciousness, then just like a small business, like a startup business, computer startup business, then you have to get some funding from investors, sell your idea to them, you get an investment, then it's possible that you can actually go public at some point. And the company can be all that it could possibly be, that potential, but you need that investment of capital. This is the idea. Matter doesn't have that potential. It's a Shakti of Brahman, but we do. That investment comes to us from that world of emotions, that opportunity. We call that, what do we call that? How does it come to us? Yeah, that's right. It comes through Guru Parampara. That's how it comes. It's a channel. The opportunity comes to us. Our potential will never be realized without that connection, that investment. But it's dormant, that potential. So it can be realized through that good company. We can live in the world of such emotions. So Krishna is explaining all these things 
in this chapter. He says, yes, Arjun, worship me, I'm the, I'm the supreme object. I am, if you want to worship Brahman or me, worship me, I'm Brahman in the fullest extent. I'm Rasa, I'm Rasa Raj, I'm Shamsundar. Your investment of giving your heart when it's done in relation to me, you could not better invest your yourself. No possibility. And then he goes on to say, of course other people do otherwise. And I don't ignore them, but more or less they're taking unnecessary trouble. And the results of their activity are dubious. I don't ignore them. You know, in time I'm, I reciprocate with them in some way, but because their approach to me is distant, they don't approach me from the heart, but in another way. To approach with the heart means just to give without expectation of return. This is bhakti. Giving for the sake of giving. I reciprocate with those other people who want something from me, like like liberation, salvation. There's a place for that. Uh, But their approach is is troublesome. The results are questionable. Over time, I, I, I often do give them what they want. But that's not in your interest. What's in your interest, then he goes on to explain how somehow or other we can orient ourselves in relation to him. He says, the first thing is, best thing is, if you just love me, just think about me all the time. This is the best thing. So he's talking about a kind of meditation. He said, when we meditate, then the mind is controlled, right? So... To think about me all the time means to be fixed in meditation, a meditation of love. It's a spontaneous kind of meditation. It doesn't have to be practiced. It's spontaneous. In fact, it's so natural and spontaneous in its full expression that even if you were to try to think otherwise, you couldn't do that. This is the problem that the gopis have. Like They try to forget about Krishna. And they can't, because he disappoints them in that emotional world. But that disappointment is, of course, another expression of ecstasy. So, shouldn't be misunderstood. So he says like this, first you meditate upon me, just, just think about me constantly in love. But if you can't do that, then practice doing that. And if you can't do that, because that's not so easy either, just to sit and practice loving Krishna constantly, thinking of him all the time. You say, well, if you can't do that, just sit, then do something. Like we've said before, they say, don't just sit there, do something. Well, if you can just sit there, that's good, but most people can't, so better to do something. And what should we do? Do things for Krishna. He says, this is another alternative. So you plant Tulsi, which is very dear to Krishna, Worship that. Open a temple for Krishna. Offer something nice to Krishna. Sing for Krishna. Dance for Krishna. Shop for Krishna. He's such a perfect object of love, you see, that the whole world of our virtual emotional life can be engaged in relation to him. People like to shop. People like to sing. People like to dance, people like to eat, to cook. So, you can do all these things for Krishna. The implication is if you're busy doing that, 
the mind will come around. It will become fixed on Krishna. And one day you sit down and chant Krishna's name and you get lost. And then you, you wake up and what time is it? Oh, I've been chanting for so, so long. I forgot about work and so many things. A fellow wrote me and he said, I have a problem. He said, when I give time to the chanting, then I get lost in the chanting. And I like it, but it's affecting my my life, my family and, and all. I said, keep chanting. <laughs> it's having a good effect ultimately. Everyone may not understand it, but if that's really happening to you, then keep it up. That's best. Of course, if, if the family's starving or something, maybe that's another thing. I didn't really think it was that, quite that cute. Generally, I wanted to give the idea that this should be encouraged. Forgetting about the virtual world of emotions, and seeing it for what it is, and entering the real world of emotions, glimpsing that. That's, this, is, this is the idea, to have some glimpse to that. If you have a glimpse into that world, then the real world starts to look like almost like a graveyard. There's so many ghosts moving around only. Of course, you've got the way to turn them into back to life, so then you have something to do in that graveyard also. But not what the ghostly people are doing. So, love Krishna. If you can't just love him, then practice loving him. But if you can't practice loving him by meditating upon him, thinking about him, then do busy work for Krishna. Now, if you can't do that, because you've got things that you want to do. I mean, Krishna's if you pay attention to him, he just keeps showing himself more and more. Before sometimes it, Prabhupada used to say, and I probably mentioned it to you on other occasions, that the deity of Krishna is a Krishna coming to us, he used to say, in a form that we can handle. So it doesn't just mean that you can pick him up and put him down and you can handle him. It means that this form you can handle because for the most part he doesn't talk. Because if he started talking, then you'd be in trouble and you couldn't handle it. He would say, bring me more, bring me more. I want more sweets and more chapatis and, and so forth. We would be very, very busy. So he's come in a form that we can handle. If he started talking too soon, it would be a problem. But he stays in such a way with us, if we're humble, and we follow some basic guidelines how to worship him, he stays in our house and accepts some standard of worship and gradually by that we start to develop love for him. And we want to do more. So he says, oh, you want to do more? Then I'll ask. Because if you don't want it, then I want to do it, then I don't want to ask. You understand? If you don't want to do it, then, then don't. <laughs> that will make me more uncomfortable. Remember, this is the yoga of love from the heart. So It's not so much what the offering is, but what's in the offering. Your heart has to, you have to be in there give yourself. So as that starts to happen, of course, then he does start to talk. And then you're very busy, always. Then you do only his work. But before you, till you can hear him talking, then another voice is speaking more loudly. The voice of the mind and all the important things that you have to do in your life. So put him in a box, close the box, open it the next day, give him something, close the box. 
But he accepts that. He's come in a form that we can handle. This is his, his kindness. But gradually he shows himself more and more. And as he shows himself, we start to see ourselves. We start to see our potential. We see how we're wasting our time in relation to other things. And the voice that we're listening to is just taking us nowhere, dead end. Busy for what? Busy to die. <laughs> That's all. We're just digging a grave for ourselves. That's all that we do. It will all be buried along with us, forgotten. Is it a good occupation? Grave digger? Well, not too bad. But if it's your own grave, <laughs> it's very bad. This, of course, sounds a little morbid and pessimistic way of looking at life. But there's great optimism in it if we follow the thought through. Because while we're painting a picture of what the virt- world of virtual emotions and reality is, we're trying to also give a glimpse into the world of of our real potential, real life, world of real emotions and real feeling. So it's rather quite optimistic, not pessimistic. So he says, do my work, but if you can't do that because you've got too many other things that you want to do, then do them. But when you do them, then you should know that the result of what you do will have value, even though you want to do it. And it's not my work, Krishna. It's not for me. You want to do it for yourself. You have a desire, in other words. You, you, you like to do a certain thing and you want to do that rather than sing for Krishna. So he says, do it, but to get some value out of the fruit of the results, then give the fruit to me. Use the fruit for my service. So this way he gives a generous way of approaching him. The beginning of yoga which means the beginning of an experiential spiritual life. When I say yoga, I mean that. Is sacrificing. The sense that by sacrificing, there will, that that's in my interest. So the, we are all fruit hunting. We're doing something to, to get something. We're doing something to get something out of it. But the, the fruits will really have as much value as you give them up after you get them as a sacrifice. This is the basis of yoga. This is moving now in the opposite direction that life moves in. In the material world, it's, it's thought that you will get ahead by stepping on the heads of others. But in reality, we will move and progress in life by having others step on our head. In other words, by letting others go first. I've talked about this before and we touched on it this morning. The difference between human society and animal society is that the full range of emotions can be experienced in human society. Of course, again, they're only a semblance of real emotions. They all occur in the mind, but still the full range of them can be experienced in human society. In human society, we can experience love. And love means to do something voluntarily. Say, you first. No, you. excuse me, you first. We don't find this in herds, in the flocks of birds and beasts and so forth. But in humans, we, we, and when we don't find that in humans, we don't think they're very human. I was an animal. See that? I just pushed it. It was way through. The, no, no concern for others. 
We think like that. We we, we react like that. Human life, great um, opportunity, and so to understand the opportunity of human life is to understand. Oh, in this life, in this position, from this position, my full potential can be realized. From this position, in connection with help from above, which I can take advantage of in this form, I can go the full distance and realize my full potential, be all that I could possibly be. So this is the beginning, Krishna says, of that. And those first six chapters are much about that also, of the Gita, moving in the direction of bhakti. So he says, do this kind of karma yoga, he says, really, in a way that the fruits of your work are offered to me. Then, of course, you'll naturally, eventually start to develop some interest in me and my things, what I do, and then you'll do my work only. If I'm doing my work only, your mind will come around and be absorbed and you'll be able to sit and practice just thinking about me for long periods of time. And that means forgetting about other things. Forgetting about other things means my needs, my necessities diminish. I'm freer. I have more free time. I can sit and think. I could become absorbed in thinking of Krishna. Then if I have no, I have no need. This is meeting all of my needs. Indeed, people are coming and bringing me food and saying, you have to take something, eat something. What kind of person are you? Can we build a house around you? Give you shelter? No, I don't need anything. Still, we make a house. And he says, all right. Then he turns it into a temple. So they can do Krishna's work and they can have this experience. And for practicing that, then he becomes absorbed in that. He enters there. And he just loves Krishna. She just loves Krishna, like that. So after speaking this, then the twelfth verse comes, <laughs> which is the question. So uh, Krishna says, anyway, so he says, better than practice is knowledge. Better than knowledge is meditation. But eh, better than meditation really is giving up the fruits of your work. Because this will bring you peace. This is basically what he says. So, what does it mean? He's reflecting back, it can be looked at in this way, that he's reflecting back on those four verses that explain, if you can't just love me, practice loving me. If you can't just practice loving me, do my work, things all in relation to me. If you can't do that, do your own work, but give the fruits to me. So in a way, he's summarizing this. And in a way, these verses are summarizing everything that he's talked about in the first six chapters, leading up to the idea that his heart yoga is the best yoga, which gives rise to the question, well, what's, what's the best object of this yoga, of this art of giving and loving, which is, of course, as we said, Krishna. So, what does he mean when he says this? He says, better than practice is knowledge. So, he's saying that I said previously, if you can't just love me, then practice. But the practice should give the fruit of knowledge, of bhakti. So the practice should have some fruit. And if you get that fruit, then you can do meditation on my, on my pastimes. So better than practice is knowledge that comes from practice. So if the practice is without knowledge, 
doesn't, then it's, there's something wrong with it. Then you should move down to the other stage and do Krishna's work. Or perhaps to a further stage, don't imitate, to a further stage, lower. Still, he says. So better than practice is knowledge, but better than knowledge is that meditation I was originally speaking about, just meditating upon me. But then from another point of view, I think this is the best way to understand. From another point of view, the best thing is to sacrifice the fruits of your activity, which is the last thing that Krishna said, the lowest on the, on the ladder. So how does that the best then? Suddenly the fourth thing, beneath just loving me, beneath practicing loving me, beneath doing my work, doing your work, and offering the fruits to me suddenly has become the best thing. And so, taking in that way, he means, practically speaking, for most people, this is the best thing. Because this is what they can do most readily, and this is what they're most interested in. And so, in that sense, it's the best. And it's the beginning of a real change in life, of life moving in a different direction, of moving your life in the direction of your real prospect. It means to start giving. Even uh, my Guru Maharaj Prabhupada, he wrote somewhere in the purport to one of those, to that verse, and if you can't give the results of your activities to Krishna, then just give something somewhere to somebody. But give. Start giving to any cause, anywhere, anything. So, in a sense, this is the best thing. This is the heart of the whole thing. That meditation upon Krishna, constant meditation in love, is full giving. So it's all about giving. Give and live. This is the idea. Just the opposite of material life. We think, I have to take to live. I have to take in order to live. But lila, that is karma then. All taking, when you take, then you get a reaction for that taking. <laughs> The hand is slapped. You took? All right. But something else is coming for that. Because why? Everything belongs to Krishna. So you are taking, seeing the world through the filter of your mind, you don't see things for what they are. You've got that those virtual glasses on. And so you reach out and take some, but that thing belongs to Krishna. It has a life. Actually, the whole world is alive. This spiritual world we're talking about, it's not like over there, so many miles in the sky, turn left and... No. So, uh, everything has, some, has value, has meaning in relation to Krishna. When we don't see that, when we don't see Krishna, we don't see the value of a thing. We try to make some val- something out of it. But... It only has some then relative value to the world of our mind, and by using it in that way, that may be improper from the point of view of another person's mind. You take it for yourself, but somebody else thought it would be better in their pocket. So you're having it in your pocket is making somebody else unhappy, and ultimately, it's unhappy. Whatever it is, whatever that so-called object is, because it has a life, and our mind is killing that life, is taking the life, but the life of all things will be realized when we excavate 
through yoga, the connection that all things have with the Absolute. When we don't see that, we don't mine to find the, the precious nature of a thing. Everything has something precious in it, something valuable. Everything. To see that value in all things by seeing them in relation to, to the Absolute, to God. This is like finding precious jewels everywhere. It's like a mining excavation. It's like turning coal into diamonds. You see how then you can be happy anywhere, with anyone, talking to anyone, examining even the minutest aspect of someone's life or of material nature and so forth. You see it in relation to the Absolute. You can sit and just watch the apple fall from the tree and be content. Not a dumb person, an enlightened person. What a wonderful thing. So what is the meaning of all this this world, even? Now we're seeing it through the filter of the mind that come out from that. Vishvam Purnam Sukhayate. It becomes a place of happiness to see it beyond the, beyond the mind. So when we take a thing for the purpose that we conceive of within our mind, then we, we take its life away. It won't be happy, so it resists. So there's some reaction. A struggle is created. This is the realm of karma. The movement here is out of necessity, a, a perceived necessity. But the movement in Krishna Lila, that is another thing. There's no necessity there because it's all based on giving. No one has any necessity. Everyone's giving all the time. So everyone's, it's like a welfare, you know, supreme social democratic <laughs> state. Everyone's taken care of entirely. But to live there, you have to give. To live is to give. So because this is the basis of reality, Krishna said, anyway, this is the most important thing here. Start giving. All this meditation, this practice and stuff, yeah, that's important. But, but let me tell you, just give. Start giving. That's the best thing you can do. And what will happen if you do? Then all the other things, the importance of them, the value of them, that will become to be, come to be seen. By giving, he says you get peace. When you get peace, then, oh, you can think what's, what's valuable, what's important. How valuable is peace? Peace of mind. So valuable. If you have nothing physically, but you have peace of mind, you can be content. And if you have everything physically, but you have no peace of mind, then you cannot be content for a moment. Such common sense, simple idea. So when we start to give, we start to get peace. Because this getting, this taking, it's really fighting with the environment. It's creating a hostile environment. And then we're wondering why we're in a hostile environment. Because we're creating a hostile environment. To give that up, you have to change yourself. Stop being hostile. It's you. The problem is you. Say, it's not about me. That's true, but it is about you too. It's about what you're, you're doing, the way you're conducting yourself. That's the problem. So, this way Krishna has emphasized, this is, this is the most important thing. Start giving. Everybody hears that. And as I said, 
Prabhupada said in his purport, just give something, do some welfare, do give to somebody, do some philanthropic activity or something. Start that. You know the story. Prabhupada uh, was in New York and in little um, storefront giving a talk on Bhagavad Gita. And some man came in. I think you know the story. He came in and walked up in front of everybody with a roll of toilet paper. Wasn't it? And just set it down like next to Prabhupada. And everybody's shocked. You know, the talk was interrupted and so forth. And he set it down and looked around and walked out. You have people like this in city, large cities. <laughs> cities can do that to people. <laughs> so then all his students, Prabhupada's students, they didn't know what to think. Should we, should we go and should we have chased that guy out of here? Or, or, or it was just too too abrupt and shocking that they didn't know what to do. So what did Prabhupada say? He said his, his, his spiritual life has begun. He's, he's given. <laughs> he's given. And um, so the generosity of the devotees, I mean, it's kind of a side point, but Prabhupada wasn't trained to use West Western toilet paper. They have a different system in India. But he must have used it somehow to see his generosity. <laughs> so, yeah, so his life of giving has begun. So His spiritual life has begun. So we are more than beginners, all of us, to be able to sit and hear this long talk about all these things. So we should try to increase our sense of, of giving. And of course then, those of you who are all, who are initiated devotees, you're devotees. So you're doing Krishna's work, but you have some desire, so you have other things to do. So you try to give some of the fruits of your work for Krishna and Krishna's mission. And at the same time, what's important in all of this is, and that's sometimes why I talk about the higher end of things, where we're going, what it's about. This should be your ideal. If, if you can get this ideal, I want to enter the world of real emotions. I want to fall in love with Krishna. Why not? I want to meet Krishna. I've seen the ad in the paper, in the personals, in the personals. And there it is. It's a long ad. 700 verses of Bhagavad Gita. 18,000 verses of Srimad Bhagavatam. See what, to what extent he went to make a personal, put himself in the personals. I am available. <laughs> this is what I'm like. Long ad he took out. It must have been expensive. Everyone to read. So we should read that ad and think, I want to meet him. Just see what a person he is. He's such a wonderful person that in the previous chapter, in the 11th chapter, what did he do? He showed this whole form in which everything was contained. And then he showed that his own personal form with two arms was even more wonderful than that. Oh my goodness. Well, it could be more wonderful, and far more wonderful than that. Far more charming and attractive. So we should read like this about Krishna and think, this is not just a theological person, a philosophical person, but a real person, the person. And that person can be met. He's put out a personal ad inviting me. And I'm open to different types of relationships, too. I like to walk in the forest, 
I like to herd cows. That's what I do. I look like this, dark and handsome. And you can be my servant. You can be my friend. You can take care of me if you like, like a parent. You can be my lover. So we, should be, we should read these books like this and think such things possible. That's what I want. That's why I'm doing this all. Not for anything else. Then that becomes bhakti. That is the core, the basis of the whole of sadhana, of all of our practice, to have this in place. This is the most important thing. If you have this in place, everything will come. That's what I want. That ideal. I want that. I may be so far from that. But if I want that ideal, and when I sit and stop and think, and if ever anybody brings it up to me, what do you want to be? This is what I really want to be. This is what I really want to do. Then you'll, you'll become that, without a doubt, over time. So try to get put that in place. This is the idea. This should be the how we read the books, hear about Krishna, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and so forth. Don't take it just as a theory. So, any question? Other question? Yes. What is Vyabhichari Bhava? It means uh, transient. So, um, it's the same as the Sanchari Bhav and Vyabhichari Bhav. You know Sanskrit better than I do, but Sanchari, Vyabhichari, they are uh, speak of the same thing. Augment the, the stayabhav. And there will be different vyabhicharis for different stayis. Do you understand that point, Shamgopal? <laughs> if, if you have one kind of stayabhav for loving Krishna as a friend or as a servant or as a lover, then the vyabhicharis, the vabs will be different, some overlapping, but relative to the stayabhav. And the anubhavs will be different relative to the stayabhav. Sattvika bhavs will pretty much be the same. Anubhavs mean the voluntary movements. Sattvika bhavs mean involuntary movements, like tears and becoming stunned, changing colors, things like this. They will be general for the most part. But in Vatsalyabhav there's a special sattvika bhav. There are eight sattvika bhavs, but in Vatsalyabhav is a ninth one. Milk flowing from Jashoda's breast, like a fountain, seeing Krishna. Like a cow sees a calf and swells up, or like any mother, I guess. So, all these things should be uh, gradually understood, and it will be helpful.